guys welcome Jesse to the stage. Warm welcome for Jesse. Jesse's up here. She's like my new best friend. See, she made me this cool hat. Look at here. Look at that wolf hat. Woo! Woo! See, covered up my bald head and keep me warm during the winter. Now, there's a story behind this because when Jesse was about five, she asked her mom, Mom, where did I get my name? And her mom let her know that she was named after her mom's 19-year-old friend who died of brain cancer. And this really kind of got to Jesse. And then she discovered by doing some research and talking to her mom that there were a lot of children every year that were battling cancer and they lost their hair. And so it was her idea as a family to begin to make these hats. And every time they sell one of these hats, they make another one and give it away to a child who is battling cancer. But you're up here this weekend because you're getting ready to give something else away. What else are you getting ready to give away? I am getting ready to give away my hair. And you have been growing that hair. Go ahead, that's awesome. And Jesse, how long have you been growing that hair, girl? Almost five years. Five years, and you're gonna on, I think, February the 7th, which is around your birthday, it's very important to you, you're gonna be 10, right? Yes. You're gonna cut it all off, and what are you gonna do with it? I'm going to give it to a child with cancer, I hope he loves the hair. Absolutely, because you found out a lot of these children lose their hair when they're going through the treatment. So you're going to cut it off, and you're going to give it to one of them. Now, just talking to you in my office, I found out that you're a very, very giving person. If you're not giving hats, and you guys have done hundreds of these for children of cancer, now you're giving your hair away. you got a lot of people here this weekend. you got the chance to tell them whatever you want to tell them. But I want you to answer this question. Why do you think more people don't give things away? Well, they don't always trust God all that all the time. Well, see, you can tell her dad went to seminary, can't you? I mean, that's that's the right answer. That's the right answer. So, um, you know, it's from the mouth of babes. You know, that's what Jesus talked about. What would you encourage these people to do? What would you would you encourage them to give? Yes, I would. I would encourage everybody to give because they all have something, don't they? Yes. If you have hair, they can find something. Mm -hmm. Except me, I don't have hair. Jesse, thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you so much for being with us this weekend. Would you guys let her know how much we appreciate it? Thank you, sweetie. You can go right over there and see Mr. Bosco. You know, some people, they make their aim in life to do something so noteworthy that they eventually get their names in the pages of history. Uh, we often hear politicians talk about their legacy and leaving their legacy. But if we're honest and if we think about it, most people, they don't actually succeed in pulling that off. I mean, eventually we live, we die. Uh, our lives are, for the most part, except for a few loved ones and close friends, our lives are pretty much forgotten. Yet on the other hand, there are people, it seems they're just kind of going through life uh, they're just doing their thing. Something happens in their life or around their life. They weren't planning for it to happen. It's something unintentional. And all of a sudden, it puts them in the pages of history. And I was, I was thinking about that over the past few weeks. I thought about the first responders at 9-11. And we've seen pictures of these individuals over and over and over again. And they weren't planning for things to happen. They just happened to be in the right place. They were doing the right thing, the thing that they were supposed to do. And they ended up with a legacy. They were willing to put their lives over the lives, uh, put the lives of other people over their lives, and that became their legacy. I think of Captain Sully, who landed that plane on the Hudson River. It became known as the miracle on the Hudson. But because he was doing the right thing at the right time, the lives of all those people were saved, and that became his legacy. This weekend, for just a few minutes, I want to talk to you about how to leave 
a legacy because next weekend is the big weekend. Next weekend is our commitment weekend for our Unleashed initiative. And over the past few weeks, I've been talking about how God has laid on our heart here in leadership to raise, to give $42 million over the next two years to increase our footprint in what God is doing in our community and the world. $27 million of that will go to the, uh, just our basic budget over the next two years, keeping the doors open so that we can do what we do in the community and around the world. Then $13 million will go toward our new facility in Apex. Uh, we're going to be able to have 12,000 people a weekend impacted there, not counting the number of people that are going to be impacted through the community center of that building throughout the week. And so that's incredible. And then the rest of the money is going to go to some additional local and global initiatives. We will give away with our minor project over the next two years almost $5 million back into the community. And so I've been asking you to consider giving at a level like you've never, ever given before. To sacrifice at a level, I'm sure many of you, you've never sacrificed at before. And to prepare us for next weekend, prepare us for that commitment, I want to talk about three people who made it into the historical record of the Bible. And I'm confident they never thought they would be in the Bible, but they wound up there, and they wound up there because of decisions that they made in regards to their resources. And I think that this is going to help you as you hear their story. It's going to help you decide what God wants you to do next week as you think about uh, the future of hope and how you fit in financially to what God is doing through this church. If you have your Bible, the first story is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screens. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 is a story about a single mom. And like any other single mom, she's got big challenges in her life. She has, she has the responsibility of rearing a son as a single parent. To make matters worse, they're living during a drought. This drought has turned into a famine. And, and, and this mom, I'm sure, has been scraping and clawing day in and day out just to provide for her son. But finally, one day she gets up and she goes to the pantry and, and she realizes the end is near. She's got a little bit of flour. She's got a little bit of olive oil, just enough to make a little cake, a little loaf, maybe like a little pancake. And her plan is, me and my son, we're going to eat this. And once we eat it, we're done. We're pretty much just going to wait and sit around until we starve to death. Horrible story. Well, right near the city where this mom and son live, there's a prophet of God. His name is Elijah. Uh, being in the vicinity, Elijah is the victim of the same drought. He's a victim of the same famine. But as is often the case, God is up to something behind the scenes. So let's pick up the story. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. Not a lot, just a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home, and I'm going to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. As I said, it is a heartbreaking scene. I mean, it doesn't get any lower than that. And every once in a while, I talk to some of the people at Hope, and I realize that this is where some of you live. I talked to an individual this week. They said, we have 17 cents in the bank. 
Not sure how we're going to get by this week. And maybe that describes you. Your bank account's empty. You don't even know how you're going to get gas in the car to get to work every day this week. You're not sure how you're going to put food on the table, much less pay the rent. Well, that's the situation we find this single mom in. She's at the end of her rope financially. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something, make a little something, something for yourself and your son. I mean, and you think about this entitlement of this guy. Like she just said, I've got enough for me and my son, right? We're going to eat it and die. And he said, would you you first make a loaf for me? But it doesn't stop there because look what he says. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Now, that's quite a promise, but you got to understand, the whole deal is based on whether or not she is willing to give Elijah this last little bit of food. Now, put yourself in her shoes. You're starving. You're broke. A stranger shows up at your door and says, hey, give me your last slice of bread. I know that you were planning on eating it, sharing it with your son, and then you were going to die, but I want you to give it to me. And if you will take the risk, if you will give it to me, God is going to resupply in an ongoing way until this dreaded famine is over. Now, moment of truth, and don't raise your hand. How many of you would do it? How many would have the courage? How many would have the faith? Well, you see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we all come to this crossroad eventually. I mean, for centuries, Christians have been playing the risk-reward game associated with God's promise of resupplying our needs. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. In other words, give, and it will be resupplied somehow, some way. It's a promise of God. Jesus also made this statement in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All these things, what things? Well, the things that you need to survive. Things like food, things like clothing, things like shelter. God will supply, and he will resupply these things. It's, it's a promise of God. Here's another one, Philippians 4, 19. And my God will meet all of your needs, not your greeds, your needs, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So back to the story. This widow is at the crossroads. She's got this promise from Elijah, this prophet. If you will give, God will resupply. But see, here's the tension. She doesn't know for sure. And there's only one way she's going to find out if God is going to resupply. She has got to take the risk and give. And then she's going to know. I told you guys a story a few years ago when we were going through raising the money to build this building. Laura and I, we made a commitment to the building that no way financially, logically we could make. And sure enough, we're coming down to like the last 45 days of this three-year commitment, and we are woefully short. In fact, we realized we won't even make enough money from this date to the end of the year if we gave everything to the church to meet the commitment. And we were bombed and we were depressed. And I, I was on a board back then, a national board. And we were having board meetings in Secaucus, New Jersey, the garden spot of the world. And uh, we flew into New Jersey early that morning. My meetings didn't start till dinner time, So we decided to go into New York City. We're walking up Fifth Avenue. Laura looks down, sees this bracelet, picks it up and says, hey, bracelet. But you know how it is, everybody in New York, they just boom, 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 boom. 
So we made our way down to the gold and the diamond district, and we took it into a jeweler, and he touched the diamonds, and he looked at the gold and said, it's not real, it's fake. I'll give you 50 bucks for it. And we said, nah, it's okay, it's nice, we'll just keep it. Well, we were wandering down the street, and we saw another jeweler, and Laura pulled it out. She said, we just, just, is this worth anything? And he touched the diamonds, and he looked at it, and he says, this is 18-karat gold. You have 33 third-karat perfect diamonds. And Laura says, what is this worth? And he says, at least $25,000. And we brought it back, and we sold it to a man in our church who gave it to his wife for Christmas. And not only were we able to meet our commitment, we gave all the money, and we exceeded our commitment because God resupplies. But I have something even more recent. I told you guys we've gone through the process of trying to decide what we're going to do over the next two years as it relates to hope financially. And uh, it's interesting because Laura says, you pray about it, I'll pray about it, and then we'll talk. So about a month after we had prayed about it, we talked about it, we came to the exact same number. And then we got all the blood rushed out of our faces because we thought the other one would talk us out of it, right? And now we realize this is the number God has given us. And we thought, how's it going to happen? So we begin to look at our budget. We begin to sacrifice. And what can we do without? And one of the things we decided had to go was we love to travel. And one of the reasons we love to travel is we love to get away from you people. But it's getting increasingly difficult as the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I've been on the way to Africa. I've run into people from Hope in the Paris airport. I've run into people from Hope in the London airport. We went to Hawaii for our 35th anniversary. I sat down and a couple behind me said, Pastor Mike, are you speaking here tonight? I'm like, go home. Leave us alone, right? But we just said that's going to have to go. That's kind of the way we recharge, refuel our jets. And we thought, well, God will just have to figure something else out. Three weeks ago, Laura gets an email from a couple. They don't go to any church I've ever pastored. They live on the other side of the country. And they sent us an email saying, I know you're really stressed out. You've got a lot going on these days. We want to take you on a vacation. And I'm like, you, you are not taking me on a vacation. See, i got so much pride. You're not, if I want to go on a vacation, I'll go on a vacation. But you're not going to take me on a vacation. And I was laying in bed that night because we're trying to, how to respond? We don't want to hurt. And, like, and finally hit me. It's like God said, would you let me just resupply? Would you let me just resupply? I'm telling you, I could tell you story after story, not just in my life, but in the lives of other people where God has miraculously resupplied. But I'm telling you, this is the bottom line. You can only tell the resupply story when you decide to give as God prompts you to give. By the way, let me just ask, what moves God to resupply when we give? Well, let's go back to the widow. What decision did she make? Well, she made the decision, I am going to trust God. So she took that little bit of flour, she took that little bit of oil, she made that loaf, she gave it to the prophet Elijah. Her and her son are sitting there watching if he, as he scoffs down this bread. She knows there's no more flour, there's no more oil. She goes back into the kitchen, she opens the pantry, and lo and behold, there's flour and there's oil. So she makes a loaf for her and her son, and she gets up the next morning, and God has resupplied again. In fact, this is what it says in verse 16. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. I mean, it was like Biscuitville around that house every morning. Now, they didn't have a lot of variety. It was biscuits and water in the morning, and it was water and biscuits at night. But I'm telling you, they did not go hungry. And because God provided, her faith began to revive. And because God provided, see, her hope was renewed. And it's one of the great miracle stories in the Bible. And this single mom goes down in the pages of biblical history because she believed in a God who would resupply. 
Now, as I've been telling you over the last few weeks, our church is also at a crossroads as it relates to our opportunity to be involved in what God is doing in expanding his kingdom. And every one of us have the opportunity to give. And many of you, you're a little shaky right now because you're wondering, if I give, is God going to resupply? I mean, if he's going to resupply, giving is no problem. But if you're not so sure, if you're not confident that he's going to resupply, you're going to be torn about your giving. I'm telling you, on the basis of the words of Jesus, I'm telling you on the basis of what's happened in my life and what I've heard countless times in the lives of other people, God will resupply when you least, when you least expect it. And you're going to have a story to tell. If you will give as God prompts you, to give. Now, this is a little sad, but you have to be honest. Some of you listening right now, you don't have a single resupply story to tell. So I'm going to urge you, and here's the principle, given a way that God will prove his resupplying promise to you. Let me say that again. Given a way that God will prove his resupplying promise to you. And then you can tell your friends about it. You can tell your family about it. And maybe you'll go down in history with a story that will be told long after you're gone. Now, the next person I want to talk about is King David. But he wasn't always King David. He began as a humble shepherd boy, and he kind of rocketed up the, you know, the celebrity status when he took out that giant named Goliath, right? But he stayed humble, and God elevated David because he stayed humble. God just elevated David from one level to the next, and he increased his influence. He increased his power. He increased his wealth. And pretty soon, David was the most powerful person in Israel. He was the king of Israel. And understand that as the king, David led Israel into the golden era of their history. And in this process, David became the wealthiest, the most powerful, the most influential man, not in just Israel, but I'm talking about in the world at that time. But somewhere near the top, David lost his way. Somewhere near the top, he lost his bearings. He lost his humility. Somewhere near the top, he began to think things like, you know what, I've gotten to where I am because I'm so smart. I've gotten to where I am because I'm so talented. He developed the attitude, who needs God? I can do whatever I put my mind to. I'm that good. If I want it to happen, I can make it happen. So David began to think, he began to process, what's it going to take for me to go to the next level? So he calls in his general. His general's name was Joab. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to number the army. I want to know how many soldiers are in our army. How many guys can we count on? How strong are we as a nation? And his general, Joab, happened to also be a trusted friend of David. He said, David, don't make me do that. Because we got a lot of soldiers, David. And you're going to hear the number, and you're going to be impressed, and you're going to think that you're invincible and David, you're going to begin to think that you can go to the next level on your own strength. But David, God is the one that gave you the influence. He's the one who gave you the power. He's the one who gave you the wealth. David, it's always been a God thing. Don't screw it up now. But David just responds, listen, Joab, I'm the king. Listen to me. Do what I tell you. So Joab, he, figures, he goes out and figures out how many soldiers are in the army. By the way, any trivia experts know how many soldiers there were? 1.3 million in the Israeli army. That was a huge army in those days. And so Joab, he goes back and he reports that number to David. And the minute David hears that report, this is what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. 
Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. In other words, David realized that he had blown it. He realized that his humility somewhere, somehow had given away to pride. But David finally comes to his senses and he says, man, I don't want to be arrogant. I want to acknowledge that it is God that brought me here. I want to acknowledge that it will only be God if I go to the next level. So he made a plan to do what people did in those days. He decided that he was going to make an, alt, uh, make an altar, build an altar. He was going to make a sacrifice to God. And it was to demonstrate the sincerity and the humility of his heart. So David decides to buy a little track of land and he's going to build this altar on it. But about that time... A wealthy man approaches David and says, why in the world would you go through all this expense of buying the land, building the altar? I already have a land, some land. It has an altar on it. You can make your sacrifice to God there free of charge. It will not cost you anything. But David responds in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, no. No. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. But you got to understand, in that single sentence, David recaptured his spiritual integrity. In that single sentence, this is what he basically said, my life is a God thing, and if I'm going to honor him again with my life, it is going to be a God thing. So I am going to do the right thing the right way. I will not give a convenient, low-cost offering. I will only give to God an offering that reveals my heart. So he pays this large sum of money for the land, and he gives an offering to God. And if you read it, you'll, you'll find out that, that, that the offering delighted the heart of God. Now, some of you are wrestling with what you're going to do next week as it relates to your giving over the next two years. And some of you are, are, are tempted to play it safe. You're tempted to give an offering to God that costs you nothing. But there's a truth, there's a principle we all know. This is it. Whenever you give a gift, your heart is revealed in the gift. Isn't that true? Whenever you give a gift, your heart is revealed in the gift. Anybody here, let's be honest, anybody here ever re-gifted? Come on, put your hands up. Yeah, you bunch of liars. We, you know, I, when Laura and I got married, you know, that was back in the early days where you couldn't register at Target and it wasn't quite as scientific as it is now. So we got a lot of punch bowls and a lot of relish trays and you couldn't really return them because they wouldn't give you anything for them because you didn't have a receipt. So we ended up with a closet of gifts that we had duplicates of or things we knew we would never use. And when the opportunity came up, we had to go to a wedding, somebody we really didn't care for, we didn't know that well. You know, I drew my nephew's name at Christmas. You know, I thought he would like a nice relish dish. See, we would re-gift. We would re-gift, and we would give those gifts. But the reality is those gifts revealed our heart, how we really felt about that person. I mean, think about it, guys. If it's your anniversary, and you're not really good at this stuff, and you're driving home, and it hits you, it's our anniversary. I didn't get a gift. Everything is closed. And you look over, and you see the cemetery you pass by every day, right? And there's a fresh grave with some beautiful roses, and you're thinking, wait a minute, this is a God thing. I'm managing his money really, really well. So you, you go over and you get a dozen roses and you take them home and your wife sees them because she wasn't expecting anything because you're basically a loser. And all of a sudden, she's just delighted and she starts to cry. They're gorgeous. How much did you have to spend? Did you get these at every blooming thing? I'll just give Renee a shout out there. That's my florist. Did you? No, honey. Can you imagine this conversation? Well, actually, I was driving home. You remember Fred? 
may he rest in peace, you know? You don't want to have that kind If you're going to go through the trouble of giving your wife flowers, roses, don't give her secondhand roses. You know, pay full market price. Don't be stupid because it reveals your heart. Now, here's my point. Next weekend, I'm challenging everybody to come with a gift. We're going to come with a commitment card. Well, we're going, to, we're going to put on that commitment card what we're trusting God for us to give over the next two years, and, and we're going to lay them down before God. Now, let me tell you something. When you give that card, it's going to reflect your heart. Don't bring secondhand roses. Don't re-gift. Don't give God a gift that costs you nothing. I'm telling you, your gift will reveal your heart. And I know that there are a lot of full-hearted people here at Hope. Many of you, you, you began your relationship with Christ right here at Hope. Many of you, your children found Christ here at Hope. Maybe you met your spouse here at Hope. Your marriage was saved here. Next weekend, give a gift to God that reflects the love in your heart. David said, I will not give a gift. I will not give an offering that costs me nothing. And he wound up on the pages of history. One more story. This person is found in Luke chapter 21. You know this person. It's that familiar story where Jesus pulls up a chair and he sits beside the offering box to do some people watching. He's at the temple. So he just thinks, I'll just sit here and I will watch as people put their offering in the offering box. By the way, Jesus sees what you give every weekend. It basically looks like this. We, we actually caught Jesus one time out there. I think he's out there this evening. Do we have that video? I think, yeah, see, he's right out there. You, Jesus, how you doing, man? Because see, he's right out there, and you guys might see him as you leave this weekend, so just keep an eye out for him. So Jesus decided he was going to do that at the temple one day, and then he's going to share some observations with the disciples. Let me show you the story. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. We also know them as mites. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now let me just say this. Small gifts, I believe, really move the heart of God because in so many cases, they include so much faith. I mean, you think about this lady's gift. It had to include faith because she didn't have anything in reserve. I mean, this is going to have an immediate effect on her the next day. One of the things I love about hope is we have diversity, a lot of diversity. We have some people here who are extremely wealthy, and we need you to engage over the next couple of years. We have a lot of middle-income people, but we have a lot of people who live paycheck to paycheck. And I talk to people all the time. They say, you know, Mike, after I tithe, after I pay my bills, I literally have nothing left. And they want to know, what should I do with this whole unleashed thing? Should I do something, or should maybe I just sit this one out? And this is what I tell them if they ask me. Ultimately, you've got to do what God wants you to do. But here's my recommendation. Make a widow's might gift. In other words, pledge maybe $50 a month because I'm telling you, your gift will move the heart of God the way this widow's might moved the heart of Christ. Make it so that your faith will be challenged. Make it so that your faith will be stretched. 
Make it so that you have to trust God to resupply, but do it so that when that campus opens in Apex next fall, do it so that when we're making the impact we're going to be making locally and globally, do it so when you see those people baptized and you hear the story of changed lives, do it so you can sit back and say, you know what, I was a part of that. I'm going to tell you, there's only a few of us that have the memories of those early days when we began in East Cary Middle School, and then we were in the fire trap on Highway 54, and next door in Grace for three years as we were building this building. And for those of us who sacrificed to make it happen, we wouldn't trade those memories for anything in the world. See, I think of it this way. Every time somebody shows up at one of our campuses for the first time, I'm just reminded that I had a part in that because Laura and I sacrificed to see it happen. Every time I hear the story of kids accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior in Kid City or a student whose life has changed through our student ministries, I remind myself of making those sacrificial gifts. And I'm just going to be honest, sometimes they were widow's mites because we didn't have much, but we were a part of it. And we were listed among those who made it happen. So I would just encourage you, when you show up next weekend, you're going to want to be remembered as someone who helped make the next chapter of Hope's history a reality, even if it's a widow's mite. Now, maybe you have your commitment card with you. So let me just kind of show you real quickly how you want to go through maybe thinking about what you want to give over the next two years. If you don't have one of these, you can get it as you leave. If you've lost yours, if you threw it away immediately when you walked out the door, go ahead and get another one because we're going to give you another one next week. But we found out that the average income in the triangle is about $65,000. So, so let's just say you're an upstanding Christian who really loves Jesus, so you give 10%. Okay, I just had to get that little dig in there. So if you would put right there in that first one that Normally, you give in a year $6,500. That's 10% gross, by the way. You don't have to figure out the net thing. It's very simple. What I normally give in a year, and then ask yourself, what is my expanded annual giving for Unleashed going to be? In other words, I would, I would typically give this, but I'm going to stretch. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to have some faith. So maybe it's $1,000, and then the next category would be $7,500. That's what you would give times two over the next two years. That would be $15,000. But then there's a line that says, gift from my stored resources. It could be all kinds of things. I talked to somebody this week that says, uh, we're selling our beach house because we believe in what God is doing at Unleashed. We just want you to know we're selling our beach house. It may be something like that. It may be some stock. You know, it, it, you know for Laura and I, she's got this silver that her, she got when her grandmother died, all this silver. And so we're going to cash it in, and we're going to give that silver. And you say, but it's from her grandmother. Listen, we don't need the silver to remember her grandmother. We've never even used the silver. We'll still remember her grandmother as we cash it in and give it to Unleashed. See how beautiful that is? Maybe, maybe you've got a motorcycle in the garage that your wife has been just driving you nuts because it's not safe to get rid of, and you sell it for $6,000. So maybe that's what goes in there. So if you adjust it to your $15,000, your commitment for the next two years would be $21,000. And next week, we're going to give you an opportunity to tear it off and to make that commitment. Now, if you're wondering where the motivation for this kind of generous giving needs to come from, one time the Apostle Paul, he, he was sitting around and he was processing. Maybe he was daydreaming, but he's thinking about the greatest gift ever given. 
And it's the gift of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, dying on the cross to purchase our redemption, to make a way for us to be reconciled back to God. And Paul, he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and he wants to write about this. This is how he described the gift in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his, and maybe he wrote great gift. Nah, that's not right. Awesome gift. Nah. Thanks be to God for his gnarly gift. No. Spectacular gift. And then he's just like pulling his hairs out. And finally he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I can't even come up with the words to describe it. I want you to understand there has never been a more costly gift given anywhere in the universe. And there's never been a gift more motivated by love than this gift. And I want you to know, because maybe you're new to hope, I want you to know that's the gift that motivates everything we do around here. That's the gift that motivates the future of this church. That's the message that we want to get out to the community and our world. A price has been paid. Sin can be forgiven. Brokenness can be healed. Hopelessness can be exchanged for hope. That is the gift that motivates everything we do. And next week, we're going to have an opportunity to present our commitment card back to God. And I'm just praying this final week that, that, that you'll just wrestle before God, that you'll listen to his prompting. Don't give any more than God asks you to give. Don't give any less than God asks you to give. Don't give leftovers. Don't re-gift. Give even if it's a widow's mite. It may be the biggest gift given in the eyes of God. But whatever you do, give motivated by the indescribable gift that was given to each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we are at a crossroads where we, we have to trust you because we believe you are leading us to do certain things for you. And it's a little scary. And we realize that we are trusting you not just to supply, but resupply and supply and resupply over and over and over again. And I know right now, so many are so fearful because they don't have a resupply story. There's never a time that they've given by faith, prompted by you, and they've seen you. Now, for those of us who've been there before, there's a certain joy, there's a certain exhilaration that comes when you give us a number, when you lay something on our heart that we know is humanly impossible, but we go into it with utter confidence because you are God who supplies and resupplies. Father, this isn't just about us giving money. This is a spiritual decision. This isn't a financial decision. It really comes down to how much do we trust you? And Father, you have proven yourself in the 20-year history of this church that you are trustworthy. And you've proven it over and over again. And may we respond to you in such ways that we will have stories to tell. Stories to our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and our friends of how we trusted you. And you did more than we could have ever possibly imagined in our lives. So right now, Father, this week, Allow us to carve out that time to seek your heart, to pray. 
We've done the work of praying last week, and we've looked at how we're managing your money. Now, Father, give us the courage to trust you. And as you prompt us, may we act. May we act on that prompting. And, Father, may we see lives changed, whether it be here in the Triangle or in Haiti at our campus or in Uganda or wherever it is, Father, wherever you're working and you've allowed us to be involved. May we see lives changed for your glory. And we will give you the glory for everything that happens. In your name we pray. Amen.